This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group with showrooms in Canterbury and Maidstone, offering a range of new and approved used cars, including MG, Seat and Vauxhall. Kent Online News. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. Nicola Everett. Hello, hope you're okay. Thanks ever so much for downloading today's podcast on Wednesday, June the 8th. And our most read story today is that plans for a new indoor swimming pool on Sheppey have been scrapped. Now, the council covering the island was due to include the idea in a bid to government for £20 million as part of the levelling up scheme. But they now say they're focusing their proposals on a soft play site, adventure golf, cafe and gym instead, after being forced to slash their budget. Councillors were told about the decision at a meeting last night. Some have branded it disappointing, as the current facility at Beachfields is nearing the end of its lifespan. Residents had already provided loads of ideas on how to give Sheerness a boost and were said to be very much in favour of a new pool. Well, our reporter John Nerden broke this story and joins me now. John, what do you make of it all then? Poor old Sheppy. For years it has seemed to be Kent's forgotten island, starved of cash and investment. And just as it looked as if the tide was finally beginning to turn, the rug has been pulled once again. The news has been greeted with, as you would expect, a mixture of fury and also resigned weariness on the island as residents feel they've been let down once again. Some of us remember the halcyon days of Sheerness back in the 1960s when it boasted a funfair with a big wheel, roller coaster, boating pond with motorboats, miniature golf, tennis courts and a cafe on the prom with sea views like most other seaside towns. If only we could get some of those back. John, thank you ever so much. The final bid for the cash has to be submitted by July the 6th. Well, several of you have been commenting on the story today. Let's have a look at what some of you have got to say. Kentish Finest has written, The swimming pool would encourage fitness and help the community in more ways. The one, Ezekiel, has added, I grew up on the Isle of Sheppey, have since moved away, but spent a lot of time at the leisure centre when I was a child. Swimming, tennis, football, roller hockey, you name it, I was interested in it. It's such a shame that facilities which help public health and provide tools for young adults to use throughout their life of being allowed to crumble. Another commenter says the pool was never going to happen for £20 million with all the other bits they announced at the same time. He's described it as poor but not entirely surprising. Canterbury Residents has written, why would a public body that's declared a climate emergency want to replace a non-environmentally friendly and expensive to operate indoor swimming pool at a location with immediate access to several good beaches? One reply to that is because sea swimming in December is unpleasant. Well, fair enough. You can let us know what you think about that decision. We're particularly interested to hear from you if you do live on the Isle of Sheppey. You can leave a comment on the story or you can head to our socials. Kent Online News. Other top stories for you today. And it's claimed a man who suffered life-changing injuries was dumped on the doorstep of a Kent nightclub by security staff. Police have called for a review of safety measures at casino rooms in Rochester following a number of concerning incidents. The club, meantime, say they're already trialling an ID scanner at the door. Well, the council's licensing committee has been meeting to discuss it and they're due to make a decision on the club's future within the next week. A motorcyclist has gone on trial accused of deliberately driving into an off-duty police officer in Folkestone. Adam Ashman is said to have sped towards the victim while 
while performing a wheelie on Cornwallis Avenue in July 2020. Both of them ended up injured. The 26-year-old from Moorhall Avenue denies attempted GBH and is expected to claim he lost control of the bike. Lawyers for the man convicted of murdering a mum and daughter in Kent 26 years ago say they don't understand reports that serial killer Levi Belfield will be cleared of killing them. The 53-year-old, who's in prison for murdering three women, has apparently confessed to killing Lynn and Megan Russell in Chillenden in 1996. With a legal team for Michael Stone, who's serving life for their deaths, say they've been told there's no date yet for the outcome of the report by the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Now, a leading expert from Kent is calling for facilities to be set up to try and reduce the number of drug-related deaths. So-called overdose prevention centres would allow users to take illegal substances but in hygienic, supervised spaces. Most recent stats show that deaths linked to drug poisoning reached a record high of more than 4,500 in England and Wales in 2020 and two-thirds of those deaths were directly related to drug misuse. I've been speaking to Professor Alex Stevens, who's from the University of Kent. We're currently living through a public health crisis of drug-related deaths in this country, over 4,000 people dying every year of avoidable deaths, um, many of them from overdoses that involve heroin or other opioid substances. An overdose prevention site is a place where people can go and use drugs that they have obtained on the illicit market. And instead of having to use them in a back alley or in a derelict church or hurriedly in a car park, um, they can use them in a safer space where if they get into problems with that drugs, their, their lives can be saved by uh, admission oxygen or naloxone, which is the antidote to a heroin overdose. These services run in at least 14 other countries, have been running for decades, for example, in Switzerland and the Netherlands, and have been shown to save lives. I was looking at the stats today, and as you say, they, they reached a record high in 2020 with over, over 4,500 uh, drug-related deaths, two-thirds of those through drug misuse. So clearly there's a big problem, but I'm sure critics would immediately say, why on earth would we want to encourage people to take these drugs safely when should we not be preventing them from using the drugs in the first place? What would you say to that? We have to accept the reality that there are thousands of people who are taking these drugs, and many of them have been admonished for a long time, many of them punished, and many of them even been imprisoned for their drug use, and it hasn't stopped them. Many of those people have deep-seated mental and physical health problems, and they continue to use these substances despite what they've been told, and despite experiencing quite severe consequences, both in the criminal justice system and to their own health. We can't pretend that these people are just going to stop using drugs. We can save their lives and provide this type of support that helps them move towards a situation in their life when they can put drug use and drug problems behind them. But it's no good just pretending that by cleansing our hands of this issue and telling people they just need to change their ways, that we're going to solve the public health crisis of drug-related death. Would these sorts of facilities work in conjunction with support centres that would help people come off of drugs? Because would they then want to go to those facilities if at the end of using a centre they were said, and here's a leaflet on how to stop taking, you know, I know it's a lot more complex than that, but how would it work? Would they run independently? Overdose prevention centres are delivered as part of a comprehensive treatment system. So we do in this country have harm reduction and drug treatment system that reaches between 40 and 50% of the people 
who've got problems with opiates, heroin and crack. Um, and for many of those people, it does save their lives. We're probably saving about a thousand lives a year already with the um, drug treatment system that we have, but there are still too many people dying and too many people who are not being reached by that system. Overdose prevention centers provide a space where people who aren't engaged in treatment for whatever reason can very easily access a space where they can be safe and also um, be shown that people care about whether they live or die, which is the first step to people, you know, taking a second look and saying, well, if somebody else cares if I live or die, why don't I care if I live or die? And therefore, why don't I think about um, other sorts of services that might help me move away from drugs and the drug problems that I have? And so this, these overdose prevention centres are not an answer on their own. They should be part of a comprehensive package to try and address this public health crisis we're living through. As you say, it's it's a it's an issue that we can't just sweep under the carpet. We need to appreciate that this problem exists. And I'm sure a lot of people were saying, well, your idea, Alex, sounds great, but I don't want that in my street or near where I live. Thank you very much. Where would these sorts of centres need to be set up and so they could run effectively? In the places where they have been set up, there has been this resistance to the idea because people are afraid that they might attract people they consider to be problematic to their area. What has actually been found in the many places that would set these up is that the local community learns to really appreciate these services because they actually reduce the problems they're having with people using drugs in public, with um, drug-related litter. People see that there's less needles being discarded in public places, car parks and playgrounds. Um, and also there are fewer costs on the local health service because, for example, there are fewer uh, ambulance call-outs to people who are overdosing. Um, so normally what we see in the places that have set these services up is that the local community and local businesses come to appreciate the benefits that these services provide. Now, as to where they should be provided, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs has suggested they should be considered everywhere where there is a, a, a high concentration of injecting drug use. And that is places, there are a lot of places like that across the country. Um, in Kent, for example, we see parts of Kent that are quite deprived, for example, Thanet, um, around Dover, around Folkestone, where there are people who are injecting drugs. Some of them don't, are not so stably housed and are therefore using in public spaces. And it's those sort of places that need an overdose prevention centre. Personally, I found that a really interesting idea and quite a fascinating chat, but we'd love to know what you think. You can comment on our socials today. Just search for Kent Online on Facebook and Twitter. This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group with car dealerships in Canterbury and Maidstone. A court's heard how a Gravesend man who carried out armed raids on five betting shops was caught after giving his name to a railway ticket inspector. Brett Mullen stole more than £2,700 from bookies in Lee, Norwood, Sutton and Crayford in April. The 51-year-old from Wellington Street will be sentenced in August. Police say they're still keen to hear any information about the murder of an unidentified woman in Kent that remains unsolved after more than 40 years. The body was discovered in Bedgebury Forest in October 1979, with the victim suffering traumatic head injuries. A man from East Sussex was charged with murder 20 years later, but cleared following a trial. A drug dealer who was caught on CCTV using a county line phone on a train to Margate has been jailed for more than four years. Police managed to track down the 28-year-old who's from London. They also managed to recover 19 weapons and £35,000 in cash last month 
as part of efforts to tackle County Line's gangs. Now, the boss of a Kent company says allowing staff to work a four-day week will have huge benefits. Charity Bank is based on Tunbridge High Street and has joined 70 other businesses in the biggest pilot scheme of its kind. CEO Ed Siegel says the idea started actually when a colleague in the executive team decided to take off every Friday in January to use up some leftover holiday. Well, he's been speaking about the whole thing to Lucy. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for a three-day weekend every weekend. In fact, what really, really, things really started to take off uh, in our thinking when one of our colleagues on the executive team uh, decided to take off every Friday in January because he had some holiday left over from last year. And what he observed was, first of all, how how great it was to have that extra day on the weekend, but also how knowing that he had a three-day weekend ahead of him made those four days when he was in the office that much more productive because he he wanted to actually enjoy the three-day weekend and not let the work trickle into the weekend. And so during those four days, he really put his head down and, and, and found himself being much more productive. And that's, that's sort of, that is the, the general theory of this approach that that motivation, um, the, the improved well-being from a longer weekend and the motivation to continue to enjoy that three-day weekend helps make us much more productive during the four days that we are at work. What's the response been from staff at Charity Bank? Are they, are they sort of excited about it? Are there any concerns they have at all? I think the vast majority are really excited about it uh, and really getting stuck in to how they can make it work for themselves. There will be a small number of people who, for a variety of reasons, don't want to reduce their, their working hours. They, they like the pace that they're working at and uh, they like being in the office. Some people, um, you know, for some people, that socialization, it's really important to them. Uh, it's, um, you know, it, it's important for their mental well-being. And so this is an opt-in program. We're not forcing this on anyone. It's, it's an opportunity that's given, being given to all staff, um, but not everyone needs to take it. And how do you see this progressing? I mean, is this the way forward? Because we, we talk a lot about mental health and, you know, finding that work-life balance at the moment. Could the four-day working week be the future? I hope it is. I hope it is. Um, I can only speak for myself. Um, I often feel that, um, you know, the weekends are too short. You, you, you spend an awful lot on your personal to-do list. If you've got family, children, they take up a fair bit of your time. And before you know it, it's Sunday night and you've really done very little for yourself. At the end of the day, this is, this is about making people's jobs better. To, to, to improve their quality of life in the workplace. And we hope that if the four-day week pilot is successful and it becomes permanent, that that makes us a, a much more attractive employer as well. Now, other companies in Kent already work this way. One of the first to bring in a four-day week was Reflect Digital. They're a marketing agency based in Maidstone. They work a little bit differently to the trial that's taking place. And I've been chatting about it all to founder Becky Sims. There's a small bit of me that goes, oh, but it, we'll lose our differentiator a little bit. But actually, that is so outweighed by just 
think more people should get the benefit because I just love it. Like it's so important to us for our the way that we work and for the lives that we lead that we get our four days and then our three days off. And I just want more people to experience that because I think, well, we're all just reeling from four days off for a, for a long weekend, aren't we? And it does make a difference, doesn't it? It, it does make a huge difference. Um, I think we've, we found it a bit stressful because we had to cram so much in <laughs> to three days beforehand. But tell us how it's worked for you, because you started this quite a while ago, didn't you? Yes. So we've been doing this since 2018. So a long time now. Um, and yeah, it's so it's changed a bit over that time. It's um, it's adjusted. It's especially the pandemic changed things a little bit. We've probably got more flexibility around how we run our four day week now um, than we used to have just because I think there's just more flexibility in general. The world's uh, changed a little bit. But for most, of our, for most of our team that choose to do it, so first of all, is a, an optional um, an optional benefit because for some people it's not a benefit. They like five days at work. They like that structure. But for those that choose to do it, it's Monday to Thursday um, or they could do Tuesday to Friday, but everyone chooses Friday off. Um, and they do slightly longer days to, to compensate so that they do still get paid their full wage and they're still working their full working week. Um, and you get this longer day, but you've got this time at the beginning at the end of the day when the rest of the world isn't working as much and you can get real productivity done in that time. So um, we're all very adjusted to it now and love it. The national trial is a little bit different to that because they're saying you do your job still, but 80% of the time, although you still get your 100% pay. So they are actually cutting hours rather than whereas you're increasing the hours over the four days. What do you make to that? I love that they're doing it. And actually, I was chatting to uh, one of the businesses doing the trial the other day and because she wanted to pick my brains and, I, and, and she wanted to pick my brains on that bit. And I was like, oh, we don't do that. We have kept the hours. And I was like, I'm excited to hear how it works. And, and apparently in the trial, there's been amazing amounts of, um, uh, of information and videos to watch and ideas on how to improve productivity. I do think... Um, so we didn't choose to do it just because we're such an hours driven business and it just felt like a step that we couldn't make at the time. I'm interested in it now to see what happens from the trial, I think, because there are ways to gain in productivity and we have made gains Like we definitely get more done in less time than we used to. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, it seems to me that if there's one positive to come out of the pandemic, it is this whole being more flexible and thinking about workforce and and kind of their, their work life balance a lot more do you do you do you, would you agree with that do you think that's what's happened ever since we started the four-day week I've always like at least on a monthly basis I've got someone knocking on my door saying can I talk to you about it but since the pandemic that's just gone up uh, so much because so many people are interested because they really do see and I think there's just so much more trust in businesses now that actually they can trust their team they had to trust their team to work at home they some businesses went over what 18 months with maybe out seeing their colleagues in real life at all or have hired people remotely so that trust has built bridges that has meant that I think more businesses are willing to consider this type of thing and I think that is just great for society in general moving forward. We'd love to know what you think of this one as well today does a four-day week sound really appealing to you we've got a poll within the story at kent online where you can vote you can also leave a comment there as well kent online reports it's thought a fire at a derelict cinema in deal might have been started on purpose five fire engines were called to tackle the blaze at the former regent on victoria parade yesterday evening no one was injured but there were reports of people inside when it began it's been confirmed more than ten thousand asylum seekers have now crossed the channel to kent so far this year 
year. It's after a further 79 people, including young children, made the dangerous journey in two boats yesterday. The first flights taking refugees from the UK to Rwanda are due to leave next week as part of the government's new controversial plan. Plans to phase out petrol and diesel taxes in Canterbury, Whitstable and Herne Bay could be pushed back following criticism from cabbies. Council bosses had wanted to ban older polluting vehicles from August, but are now considering allowing them until 2024 instead. Taxi drivers have been worried about losing their livelihood if they weren't able to afford to buy a new car. Now, a little girl from Medway who was born with a birthmark in her throat is recovering after having life-saving surgery. Mia Rogers was rushed to hospital when she started wheezing while breathing at just five weeks old. This is an incredibly rare condition, certainly something I'd never heard of before, but her mum, Sophie Collins, has been telling reporter Alex Langridge all about it. Mia was around five weeks old and I noticed her breathing just came a bit more laboured and she was just trying a little bit harder to breathe. Um, So I decided to take her to Medway Hospital um, and they just said she was a bit congested and just to keep an eye on her. So I've done that and it just got worse. So then called an ambulance um, and they said that she had croup. So we got rushed in from there um, and it kind of all just escalated from there. She was treated for, on steroids for croup, which normally after, they say, three days, it sort of goes. Um, but for me, it didn't um, and just got a bit worse again. And then I took her back to Medway um, and then they said that she just had a, a floppy airway, which was creating the noise when she was breathing. Um, and that's just something that she'll just sort of grow out of. Um, but then that following sort of four or five days, she, again, she just got worse and worse because obviously unbeknown to us, it was growing in her airway. Um, I took her back to Medway and at that point they didn't really know what, what it was. So they got the Evelina involved um, and a doctor and some nurses from the retrieval team came down um, and assessed her and the decision was made to ventilate her, put on a ventilator and get her to London as soon as possible to see what was sort of going on. Um, and then obviously that must have been quite sort of scary for you as parents, sort of not really knowing what's happening and being told sort of a lot of different things. Um, how was that kind of experience for for you? Yeah, it was really, it was really hard, obviously, especially during COVID. To begin with, um, my other half, John, wasn't allowed in to Medway because obviously there's only one parent allowed. So it was really hard, obviously, trying to get information from the team there and then relaying it to him and it was, it was very emotional and we just sort of up in the air we just didn't know what was going on but we knew something was wrong um and then at the point um she was in critical care at Medway we were we were both allowed in um so that was obviously a lot easier we had each other um and then when the Evelina team turned up and told us the risks that obviously could pose to me or to get her on the ventilator um was was very upsetting. As you say, it's obviously quite a hard decision, sort of the what's if, not knowing kind of what was happening. Um, when did you kind of find out what was actually sort of going on with her airway? Kind of what was you told then? Friday we got rushed up there and it was the Monday they operated and put the camera down to find out what was sort of um, going on. Um, and that's when they said this, what they discovered, the subcolotic hemangioma um, and just explained that it's birthmark. So lots of children, we have them on their scalps growing and um, obviously hers is in her airway and they just obviously told us the plan of action to start on the medication and and sort of go from there as you say you put on the medication and then kind of deteriorated again is that right 
Yeah, so she was fine in the, in the May um, and this June, and then in the July, August time, she started deteriorating again. Um, and that's when I'd had to take her back to Medway and took us to the Evelina. And again, they put another camera down and said it was growing a lot quicker than they anticipated. So they increased her medication levels um, to sort of see if that helped. Um, and they brought forward another operation, which was due in November. They brought that forward to September, which is where they, they went down and found that it was obviously a lot bigger than they thought. So they then took the decision that in the October, we were going to have to go down and cut some of it away, which is called debulking. Um, so that happened in October. She was back in intensive care then for two days and high dependency for another two days. But since then, she's she's been doing brilliantly well. Thanks so much to Sophie for chatting to us. And we're so pleased to hear that little Mia is now recovering well. The family have since raised £5,000 to thank the staff at the Evelina Children's Hospital in London. Kent Online reports. A Kent secondary school's issued a stranger danger warning after a man handed two students an inappropriate note. Rain and Mark Grammers contacted police saying the girls who are in year 11 and on study leave were approached at Tesco Extra in Gillingham on Monday afternoon. The A21 Tunbridge bypasses going to be closed over several weekends for major roadworks. It's all going to start on Friday night between Morley's Roundabout and the Vauxhall Interchange with further closures planned in the autumn and next spring. Bridge repairs will be done which means the road will be shut from midnight until six on Monday morning over four consecutive weekends. Now Kent School is hoping to build a visitor centre so more of us can go and see their wartime tunnels. They were used by children at Maidstone Girls Grammar in the 1940s. Two of three shelters built under the school have been restored and open to the public along with displays of newspapers and schoolwork from the time. Deborah Stanley is the head teacher. We've been overwhelmed with the interest that the public have shown in wanting to visit our tunnels. We've not been able to meet the demand of people who wanted to come today but we've been really pleased with the feedback that we have had. People have been delighted to find out more about the school both now but also its history in the past in the Second World War and to visit our tunnels and to see what it was like for a schoolgirl in the Second World War to have had their lessons underground. We hope very much that we'll be able to have a permanent visitor centre available for people to come in the future to find out more about both the Second World War and the tunnels and to learn more about our history. They're hoping to raise £300,000 to pay for the building. If you head to Kent Online today, you can see pictures of those tunnels. And finally, David Walliams is in Kent today. The Britain's Got Talent judge will be signing copies of his new book at Waterstones at Blue Water. He'll be joined by the illustrator of The World's Worst Pets, which features 10 stories about crazy animals, including a magician's rabbit. Kent Online Sports. Tennis and Kent's Emma Rajakano says she has no idea if she'll be fit to play at Wimbledon after withdrawing from the Nottingham Open through injury to her left side. The British number one was 4-3 down in the first set of her match when she retired from the game. The 19-year-old from Orpington has called it a freaky injury and will now get a scan. On to cricket and it was another disappointing defeat for Kent last night, I'm afraid, in the T20 blast. Essex easily beat their target of 130 in the match at Chelmsford. The Spitfires have only won one 
one game so far this season at bottom of the South Group table ahead of a trip to Somerset on Friday. And just to remind you, of course, they are defending champions. And in football, after Gillingham signed up one of last season's youth players professionally, they're now waiting on another. The club confirmed yesterday Bailey Akehurst to put pen to paper on his first pro contract, but Josh Chambers is yet to do the same. Boss Neil Harris says he thinks highly of him and hopes he commits his future to Priestfield. Well, that's all from us for today. Thanks ever so much for listening. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Plus, you can now get access to the ad-free Kent Online premium site. All you need to do is subscribe. Just head to kentonline.co.uk forward slash subscribe. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the FG Barnes Group with showrooms in Canterbury and Maidstone, offering a range of new and approved used cars, including MG, Seat and Vauxhall.